0: Hey, welcome to those of you who are just here for the first time or maybe haven't been here for a long time, welcome. We're so glad to see you this morning. And of course, for those joining us online also, we welcome you to, uh, to Crosspoint this morning. Uh, before I get diving into things, I wanna give you a bit of a special announcement. I'm so excited to announce that the Eritrean Alliance Church is going to be joining us as one of our ministry partners here at our Crosspoint campus. So uh, for, for those of you who maybe are aware, previously, uh, back in 2018, the Eritrean Alliance Church was here in the facility, but they found another facility that was going to accommodate their needs. And so they went and joined that facility. They've since lost the facility. They were looking for a place a couple weeks ago. They reached out and they said, hey, can we come back and join you guys at Crosspoint? We said, we would love to have you. So starting yesterday, they joined us already at Crosspoint. Now, we would love to do a ramp up and roll out and all this, but like, this was Christmas holidays. We only had like a couple weeks to make this happen. It's happened. They're back. I, I, I saw Pastor Nahum yesterday. We had a great time together, conversation, and we're just so excited about what God is going to do in this congregation as they're part of our, our Crosspoint uh, uh, facility here. Um, so they're going to be hosting their worship services Saturdays at 12 o'clock p.m., and they're going to use our facility a couple of nights of the week in different classrooms or whatnot. So if you get a chance and if you see them, please welcome them and say, we are so glad that you are here with us here at the Crosspoint campus. And I'm hoping that in the days ahead, uh, weeks ahead, we'll be able to give you a chance to get to know them uh, a little bit more. So, we are uh, continuing our series in the book of Romans, and if you are new, uh, we began this series back in January. Uh, we went until springtime, we've taken a little bit of a break, and now we're jumping back in at Romans chapter 8. So, I hope you have a Bible that's handy, whether paper or digital, and you can track along with us this morning as we're going through this passage. Um, there are notes that are available online, thecrosspointchurch.ca, uh, slash notes, you can go there and track with us with those, uh, and those are going to help you do a little bit of a deep dive as as well. There's some extra supplemental material that I provided in the notes. Because, listen, Romans 8 is like one of the most beloved passages of Scripture in the New Testament. It's also one of the most robust and deep passages of Scripture in the New Testament. So we're just going to kind of be skipping across the surface of this deep ocean this morning together. So I hope you'll get a chance to go deeper with that today. Let me give you a bit of recap on the book of Romans. Because like we haven't been here for a while, um, but what is, what is the book of Romans? It's a letter. It was written by a man named Paul the Apostle. Uh, he's writing to a tiny little church in the city of Rome 2,000 years ago. And the main thrust of the book, from cover to cover, Paul is basically explaining the gospel. What is the gospel? It is the, the good news that through Jesus the Messiah, God is restoring all things. And that includes you, and that includes me. And Paul's trying to show that in the gospel, God's demonstrating his own righteousness. In other words, God is working to set things right. And not only that, he's a God who does right. He's a God who keeps his promises. That's the big overarching understanding of the book of Romans. But but Paul is doing so much more in Romans than just kind of like giving us a doctrinal statement or a theological treatise. It's a real letter that was written to real people with real challenges. There were ethnic tensions within the church in that day. Uh, The church in that day was facing growing resistance in in the empire of Rome. Uh, Romans tended not to like or trust Christians. Uh, So there was tension in the church that was trying to divide it, but there was also pressure coming from outside of the church, from a culture that was trying to get the church to conform to that culture. So it seems like, if you read Romans, we actually have a lot in common with the Romans. I mean, how many of you have sensed a lot of tension within the church in North America in this past year? And how many of you maybe have felt the cultural pressure to compromise your beliefs in the face of the growing, changing culture that we live in? Well, in this part of Romans, Paul is addressing the problem of suffering. And and Paul likely has in mind this this understanding of the growing resistance that's happening in, in Rome. Um, he's likely seeing the resistance, the persecution that they're starting to face as Christians who were marginalized in the empire, Christians who are starting to be mocked and ridiculed. Uh, There was even sometimes violence against Christians in Rome at this time in the Roman Empire. So there was a very real cost of following Jesus in Paul's day. And sometimes that cost actually included suffering. I think most of us would know that suffering is a very human experience. Suffering is is inevitable. There's no cure for it. There's no prevention of it. No matter how you plan your life, no matter how much money you have, no matter how how much power you have, no no matter how much influence you have, you cannot avoid suffering. Life is fragile. And as human beings, we are frail. And I know many of you, and I know your stories, And I know that many of you are experiencing suffering right now in your lives. So how do we respond to suffering? Well, the Apostle Paul helps us with this. And this morning, as as we walk through this passage of Scripture together, I want to talk to you about how glory lifts us through suffering. That in our darkest hours, glory actually helps us to stand, to rise. So we're going to answer questions like, what is glory and, 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 and what can we learn about it? And as we work our way through Paul's letter, I'm hoping that we'll discover three realities about glory that will lift us or help lift us through suffering. But before I do that, I'd like to pray. And I invite you to pray with me. Can we pray? Father, I thank you this morning that you see us. And we thank you this morning that... You know us intimately. You know everything that's going on in our hearts and our minds. And so this morning, Lord, we invite you to um, be at work in us through your word as we read it, as we go deeper. We ask you to help us to understand it. Not just understand it, God, but also to embrace it for ourselves. We thank you for the gift that it is to us. And, And so this morning, Lord, do your work, we pray. Help us. We love you and thank you for loving us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, here's the first reality about glory. It's very simple in the text, is that we are destined for glory. You know, Paul says in the text that the church will share in Christ's glory. He also says that this glory is yet to be revealed in us. And he also says in verse 30 that, the, that eventually God will glorify those who he has called and those who he has justified. So, so what is it? What is this, this glory that Paul is describing here? Well, the word glory, it's interesting, the Greek word, it means, it's doxa, and it means weight or importance. And a person who has glory is a person who has reputation or a person with honor or, or elevation. But in this passage in particular, Paul is talking about our future glory. He's talking about that day when God will eventually elevate us. He's talking about our internal inheritance as the children of God. So take a peek at verses 14 to 17 you'll notice that that Paul first talks about our intimate adoption. He talks about how how we have become the children of God through Jesus. See, we were, of course, we were orphans, we were enemies of God, but through through the sacrifice of Christ and our belief in the gospel, God has done this marvelous and spectacular work. We have actually gone from being orphans and enemies to being adopted as part of God's royal family. We have become children of God. But this isn't just any old adoption that Paul's talking about here. He actually describes it as an intimate adoption. He says, When we believe, the Spirit of God comes to dwell inside of us, and we can know God in a deep and meaningful way, to the point that we can call God Abba Father. You know, Abba is is the Aramaic word for father. Paul's letter, if you understand, was, was written actually in Greek. But as he's writing this letter, he's like, I need the right word to describe this relationship that we can have with God the Father. And so instead of choosing a Greek word, he chooses an Aramaic word. And the Aramaic word he chooses is Abba, which is more intimate. Abba is something more like dad or like daddy. It's actually the word that Jesus used to describe his own relationship with God the Father in the Gospel of Mark. So our adoption isn't just kind of at face value. It's actually an intimate adoption. So think about this. You were not some orphan that God decided one day he was going to bring home and then just kind of subtly ignore. You were not Harry Potter in the cupboard under the stairs. God is not the kind of parent who, who only provides you with food and lodging, who treats you kind of like a piece of furniture, kicks you around once in a while, and pretty much avoids you most of the time. That's not the relationship that God has adopted you into. No, he is the kind of father who takes you home and says, I want you to take on my good name. You get refrigerator rights. You get access to the remote control. He invites you to laugh around the dinner table, to sit with him during story time. He'll even tuck you in at night. He'll play board games with you. You are his child. Do you understand this? And God wants to be in a personal relationship with you. And as his child, Paul says, we will eventually share in his eternal inheritance. Notice that Paul says that because we are children, we are heirs with God, and we are co-heirs with Christ. So we are sharing Jesus in his inheritance. In verse 22, it says that one day God will actually graciously just give us all things. That God's family will one day ultimately inherit the entire world. Mind-blowing. Now, it's really important to remember as believers in Christ, and I say this a lot to us because I think it's, it's important that we undo like hundreds of years of bad theology here. It's important to remember that our future as believers in Christ is not in heaven. Our future isn't to die, be with Jesus in heaven forever and ever and ever. Heaven is is merely a temporary stopover until Jesus returns. Our future as believers in Christ is grounded, literally, in a new creation. So when Jesus returns, he will bring about justice, he will fix everything, he will create a new heaven and earth, a place where there'll be no more pain, or disease, or dying, or suffering, and we will rule and reign with Jesus in a new creation. And Paul says it's this future glory that's, that's just waiting for us, that lifts us through suffering. And this is why Paul says this in verse 18. He said, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And it's like Paul is saying, "Okay, I just want to invite you here. I want you to do the comparison. We are destined for glory. This is our destination. And suffering is hard. And while it is hard, it can be endured if we will learn to fix our eyes on glory." So to illustrate this, um, imagine two men. They're locked in prison together. They've got a ten-year sentence. They're going to do hard time, like really hard time. Spend most of their time in isolation, eat pretty much inedible food. Spend most of their days doing hard labor. There's nothing on TV in the common room except reruns of Power Rangers and Teletubbies. It's a horrible life. Now, each of these men is married. Each of them has kids, right? And they've got a house waiting for them when they get out. Three years into the sentence, the first man's wife leaves him for another man. She sells the house. She takes the kids She buys a new house, moves in with her new husband. And meanwhile, the children have stopped calling. They stopped waiting. They've basically disowned their father. Three years in, the second man's story is different. After three years, his wife still visits him. They're still very much in love. His children still call him. They send him letters. Plus, he's found out some amazing news. His wife, in her infinite wisdom, has decided to borrow money and leverage it against the house. And she's had a bit of a windfall, a financial windfall, a huge investment. And she's not going to spend a dime of that money until he gets out so they can enjoy it together. Let me ask you a question. Which man will have a more difficult time serving that 10-year sentence? And what's the difference? Well, the second man has something waiting for him on the other side. One has hope, the other one doesn't. And even though it's hard, he's smiling through every episode of Teletubbies. Friends, through Christ Jesus, we are destined for glory, and glory can help to elevate us through suffering. We just need to see it. We just need to look up. And in the now, it's so easy for us to always have our faces in our phones, always have our faces in what's going on around us, the day-by-day grind. Paul invites us, look up, look up, and allow glory to elevate us through suffering. But here's the second reality about glory. The second reality is, is that we are waiting for glory. So, in the meantime, between the now and the not yet, Paul says we wait for our inheritance. Look what he says in verse 25. He says, We wait for it patiently. You know, we are not very good at waiting. See, impatience comes naturally to us. Especially because we live in an instant culture. I mean, we can get shows, movies, news on demand. A world of information is available just at our fingertips. Amazon Prime promises us next day delivery. We have been trained for the immediate in our world. And we stink at waiting. And, and maybe you're here today and, and, and you struggle with something that's a phenomenon that's known as Hurry sickness. You're basically the kind of person who lives life in the fast lane. You're constantly on the move. Almost fidgety sometimes, okay? People who talk slowly annoy you. You push the door close button on the elevator as soon as you get onto it, right? If Wi-Fi is slow, you call down fire from heaven. And you're the kind of person who stays in the passing lane on the highway playing bumper tag with the person who's doing 120. Do you struggle with hurry sickness? Are you sitting beside somebody who struggles with hurry sickness? Don't put your hands up. And yet, we're supposed to wait patiently, patiently for our future inheritance. So, how are we to wait? Well, it's interesting. Paul says that we are to do it with groaning. You notice that he says in, in verse 22, he says that the creation groans. And then in 23, he says we groan. And then he says that God himself groans. In verse 26. So, why do we wait with groaning? What is groaning? Well, groaning is what we do when we have feelings that are beyond words. And in fact, groaning can be much more common than we think. I mean, there's the groaning that happens when you stub your toe on a piece of furniture. You know that? Right? Uh, or, or when you bite into your favorite cheeseburger with, with crisp lettuce and, and sautéed onions and sriracha mayo, it's like, mmm, right? There's groaning. Or, or when you meet the, the love of your life for the first time, it's like, mmm. <laughs> All right? So we, we as human beings, we, we are accustomed to groaning. Sometimes we have feelings that, that are just, just beyond words as people. And so Paul says, as we wait for future glory, there is groaning. That the tension between the present and the promise, between the now and the not yet, is somehow filled with sighs and, and murmurs of longing, yearnings that, that cut right to the bone. So let's look a little bit more closely at the groaning of creation of us and of God. So why is God's creation groaning? Well, if you know the biblical story, God created the entire cosmos. And when he had finished creating it, what did he say about it? He says, oh, yes, it's very good. So his creation at its core is, is beautiful and majestic and, and, and it's glorious, but it's broken. And, and it's broken because the first humans decided to rebel against God. And so as a natural consequence, just as God has promised, he cursed the creation. So as amazing as this planet is that we're living on, and it is amazing, it's falling apart. Notice Paul uses words like, like frustration and decay. So we, we live in a world of thorns and thistles, of death and disease, and fire and famines, and volcanoes and viruses. And, and, and this is why the creation groans. But you'll notice that it doesn't just have silent sobs. Paul says it groans as in the pains of childbirth. Now, I've never given birth, but I hear that it stings a little. It's, it's true. You can Google it. You shouldn't. So, you know, I I can say that I'm I'm a bit of an expert, right? After all, I was in the birthing room twice. I didn't stay out in the lobby with a fistful of cigars. I went in, all right? And I can say, in my humble opinion, that there is a lot of groaning in childbirth. I can also say, by observation, that a person in labor doesn't want to stay in labor. Can I hear an amen? All right. Instead, they are looking forward to what comes after labor, new life, a new beginning. And in our case, two beautiful daughters. This is how a creation feels. It longs to be set free from the bondage of decay. It's groaning for the final act in God's great story. And what is creation waiting for? Look at it. Verse 19. It says it's waiting for the children of God to be revealed. What's Paul talking about here? Well, he's referring to our future resurrection. You can read about it in Revelation 20. When Jesus returns, there will be a bodily resurrection of all people on the planet. This will be followed by a final judgment. And those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life, it says, will enter into their eternal inheritance. So God's adopted family purchased through Christ's sacrifice are those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is when... This is when the children of God will be revealed. And what happens right after this event? Well, right after this event, it says that God creates a new heaven and new earth. The old has passed away. The new has come. Our present world that we're living in, this cosmos, the creation, is finally set free. And a newly restored creation appears. So the future resurrection of the sons and daughters of God is the catalyst. It is the hinge upon which all redemption turns. And creation is groaning. It's longing for it to happen. It cannot wait. But not only is the creation groaning, we're groaning. Paul says we too are waiting for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. We are waiting for our future resurrected bodies. We've been adopted into God's family. We're his children, but we haven't yet received our full inheritance of sonship. You see, our new resurrected bodies, they're going to be powerful, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. They're going to be spiritual. They're going to be immortal. And for me, I, sometimes I just, I try, it's hard for me to imagine this, what that's going to be like. Because it's a category of reality that's beyond my understanding. I've never known what it's like to be in that kind of a body. I only know what it's like to be frail and to be fragile. And maybe that's true of you as well. Have you ever felt just run down and exhausted? Have you ever felt like your body's fighting against you? Trust me, if you're not old enough now, one day you will be and you realize every day it's like your body's fighting against you. You ever feel bombarded with temptation, overwhelmed, not knowing how to fight it? Have you ever felt like life is just weighing you down like a, like a boat anchor that's tied around your ankles? If that's true for you, you probably know a little bit about what it's like to groan. And it's okay to groan in the face of hard times. In fact, Paul would say, it's right to groan. It's right. And this is the beauty of the Christian faith. You know, God does not ask us to deny the pain we feel. Neither does he want us to be swallowed by it. Grace gives us room to lament. Room to groan. Because groaning ultimately reveals our inner longings for glory, for newness, for restoration, for Jesus to come again and to fix everything. And that's important. Because here's the thing. This is important to understand. We don't just groan for what we've lost. We groan for what comes next. Because to groan without hope is to despair. But Paul says that we groan in hope. Our groaning should always be tethered to hope as believers in Christ. And our hope is that Jesus will one day return and he'll fix everything, including us. I like how Tim Keller puts it. He says, while other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of this world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. As followers of Jesus, we groan in hope. In hope. So creation's groaning, and we are groaning, but the most fascinating truth is that God groans with us you know, in, in, our, in our struggles. God, God doesn't just say to us, hey, uh, you know, hold on, just hold on, and one day I'll come back soon, like a, like a truck that's lost its brakes, just kind of roaring down the coca you know, just kind of white knuckle it to the end and hope we make it at the end, okay? I'll be back soon. God does not stand apart from our pain. Instead, it says that God comes to dwell in the middle of it. That through the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. He says the Holy Spirit actually intercedes for us through our groaning. And I don't know if you've experienced this before for yourself. But sometimes life can be so crushing that we struggle to pray. Words don't come out, ideas won't form, your heart is heavy, it's like it's overwhelmed. And so the spirit who lives inside of you brings out a different kind of prayer. It is a prayer beyond prayer. A prayer that reaches in, into the deepest corners of your heart and comes out as a groan. You know, there's, there's been times in my life where what I've, j- I've just called out to God and I just had nothing to say and all I could do is groan. And sometimes it carried on for minutes, sometimes even hours. Now, even though what you're saying or you're feeling as you groan makes no sense to you, Paul says it makes absolute sense to God. It makes perfect sense to Him because God sees your heart and He knows the mind of the Spirit. And the Spirit is therefore interceding through us and in us. So friends, groaning is, is it's a good thing. In fact, it's a God thing. And God is with us in our groaning, and he will ultimately use it to bring about good. This is actually what Paul means in, in verse 28. I mean, we, we put this verse up on coffee cups and, and whatnot, and we throw it out there just without understanding it in its context. But this is what Paul means in verse 28, where he says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We can have confidence, Paul is saying, in our groaning. God is working for us. Jesus will fix everything, if not in this life, then in the age to come. We can have confidence. God is working for us. And so we know that we are destined for glory, Paul would say. He'd also say we are waiting for glory. But finally, he would say we are conquerors in glory. Let's look at verse 27. No, in all these things, he says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And you know, when you think about it, this actually seems like a kind of an odd thing for Paul to say to this church. Remember, Paul's writing to believers in Rome. Rome was the greatest city in the world. It was part of the nation that were the greatest conquerors in the world. And Rome was actually the seat of power of the most powerful man in the world, Caesar, the emperor Nero. Um, Nero was a bit unhinged. He was insecure, paranoid. He didn't like Christians. He would eventually blame Christians for the fire in Rome and would lead to a mass persecution and killing of Christians throughout the Roman Empire. But the church in Rome was actually quite small. There were only about 100 believers in a city of about a million people. The church was made up of four or five small little house churches. And most of them were poor and powerless. If you read the names at the back in Romans chapter 16, you discover most of them were probably slaves or freedmen. So they didn't own church buildings. They didn't have democratic rights. They had no political influence or power. There were nobodies. There was very little about them that made them seem like conquerors. And Paul's letter, when it, when it went out to the people in Rome, it would have been circulated from house church to house church to house church. And it would have been read in front of these people. So you can imagine 30, 20, 30 people crammed into this house, sitting on dusty floors in the poorest district of Rome where they met. And they could look out the window and they could look up and they could actually see Caesar's palace, this pinnacle of power on one of the highest hills in the city of Rome. And they may have wondered to themselves, okay, Who's the real conqueror here? Is it us or is it Caesar? But Paul reminds them in the latter part of chapter 8. Why they are victorious already. He says we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. He says that Jesus has actually already purchased our victory. Through his death and resurrection. And that Jesus victory is our victory. That when Jesus rose from the dead, he demonstrated that the cross was victorious. That through the cross, he had defeated sin, death, the power of the grave, the principalities and the authorities. Okay? So his victory is our victory. And his victory ultimately tethers us to our hope. This is the point that Paul's making in verses 29 to 30. Notice in those verses, who is the one that's doing all the work? God is. He says, you know what? God had this plan all along. And this plan included the church. And, and he, he intended that his church would ultimately be his image bearers in the world today. It says that he foreknew them, he predestined them, he called them, he justified them. And then finally, in a final stroke of victory, he ultimately will glorify them. So he will elevate them and give them their inheritance. So Paul's saying, listen, God is the one doing all the heavy lifting. He did for us what we were powerless in ourselves to do for ourselves. All that we can do, he says, is just put our complete faith and our trust in God. So we are more than conquerors, Paul says, not through us, but through him who loved us. And because of this, Paul says, we can be secure in God's love, safe in his grace. And ultimately, there's no one who can, can condemn us, and there's nothing that can separate us from God. So let me ask you a question this morning. Is there something in your life that you think is keeping you from God's grace? Maybe you've decided to write God out of the script of your life or, or maybe you've been struggling with, with, with something, a sin or whatever and, and, and you keep kind of screwing up and you keep going back to it. Or, or maybe you've just walked away from God and you don't know how to find your way back again. You might be ashamed. You, you, you might be afraid. Is there something that you think is keeping you from God's grace? Let me ask you another question. Is there something that is keeping you in God's grace? You know, maybe you're doing all the right things. Maybe you're keeping all the rules. You serve, you give, you participate. You're a pretty good person all around. Are you living in a way that's keeping you in God's grace? If you answered yes to the first question, you have missed the gospel. But if you answered yes to the second question, you have also missed the gospel. Because God's grace is a free gift. It's not about what you've done or what you've not done. It's about what Christ has done for you. We are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. So maybe today you just need reassurance of God's grace in your life. Maybe today you need hope to rise up in your heart in the midst of your struggle. To remind, be reminded that, that God hasn't abandoned you and God hasn't forgotten you. And perhaps today maybe you simply need to see glory beyond your suffering. I'd like to just spend the remaining, the remaining time reading verses of chapter 8 over you today. And I want you to hear God's word for you. I'll start reading at verse 35. This is a letter that's written with your name on it. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Have you believed the gospel? And are you still believing the gospel this morning? Jesus welcomes you to lift your eyes to see the glory that God has prepared for you. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, mind has not conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for the invitation again and again and again every day to believe the gospel. To receive your grace and that that tethers us to hope. And I I pray, God, today that our hearts would be lifted by the future glory that's promised for us. Not because of what we've done, but because of what you've done for us. Thank you that we are more than conquerors. For those today who are experiencing suffering, I pray your grace over them. I pray your nearness to them. I I pray your comfort. I pray courage. Thank you, God, that... You are not far off to those in need. And we praise you and give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website.